Welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Today we'll be discussing whether it's a good idea to offer to be your platonic best friend's housewife, how to handle a husband who stinks, and what an overachieving eldest millennial daughter can do to find happiness. Joining me today is Cheryl Strade. She has been called the queen of advice, so I'm 99% sure if you listen to this podcast, you already know exactly who she is. But just in case, she is the author of Tiny Beautiful Things, Wild, Brave Enough, and Torch. Also, Two Women Walk Into a Bar. She originally wrote her Dear Sugar Advice column anonymously for The Rumpus until she revealed her identity on Valentine's Day 2012. Tiny Beautiful Things is a collection of her advice from that column, which she now writes in her Substack newsletter. And the book was recently adapted for a series on Hulu starring Katherine Hahn. Cheryl, thank you so, so much for being here. Oh, I'm so, so thrilled to be here. I'm such a fan, of course, of yours. And I just, you know, I usually do advice alone. So I'm so excited to do it with you. Well, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about some of these. And before we get started, I want to ask you for one piece of unsolicited advice. Okay. (laughs) One piece of unsolicited. (laughs) You know, this is a hard one because there there are so many, I have like 10 things that I would like to tell people unsolicited. But the the biggest one, you know, what first came to mind is to really err on the side of kindness and generosity as often as possible. And I think the thing that people forget about that when, when they hear that, they think like, be nice to other people, which is certainly true. But I think the most powerful thing we can do is be kind to ourselves. And that is, of course, so much deeper than it might sound at first glance. It's It's about listening to yourself. It's about trusting yourself. It's about believing in yourself. And it's about believing that you deserve love and you deserve that, you know, ability to take the chance to find happiness in your life. So that's my unsolicited advice, Janae. What do you think? I feel like that's basically the the one sentence summary of all the advice you give, right? That's right. You're, yeah, <laughs> you're constantly just reminding people to be easy on themselves and believe in themselves. And we'll get into this more throughout the episode, but listen to themselves. Well, don't you find, I mean, I say this over and over again in my work as Dear Sugar, is that so many of the letter writers, you know, what they're saying to us is, I know this is the right thing, or I know mm-hmm. this is the wrong thing. And it's like, they're afraid to know it. So they've written to us and we say, no, no, yeah, you're right. This is completely wrong. You deserve better in this relationship or, you know, you need to make a change or you're doing okay. Right. And often I think the the very choice to write a letter says so much about how the person's doing and and what they know and what they really need to hear. Yeah. They're putting on down on paper or on the computer screen what they already know. And we're saying, you're right. Exactly. And we somehow we get paid for this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Cheryl and I will dive into your questions after a short break. Can't get enough Dear Prudence? Then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate network and unlimited reading on the Slate site, including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash Prudy Plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, 
That's slate.com forward slash Prudy Plus. Welcome back. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Cheryl Strade. Let's get started with our first letter. It's titled Breadwinner Bestie. My best friend and I are in our mid-20s and have been friends since we were in first grade. It's relevant to my question that we are both queer women, but not at all attracted to each other. We both live with our parents, but I work full-time, and she is currently unable to due to some health issues. She both keeps busy and contributes to the household by doing nearly all the housework in her parents' house. She genuinely enjoys keeping things just so, and it gives her something productive to do while she isn't working or in school. A while ago, I joked that she would make a great housewife, and she said, I know, right? Last week, it turned out that we were both still thinking about it. We're already planning to move in together when she goes back to school. We have lived together before, and we are compatible housemates. And we've already established that if she isn't working yet by the time she can no longer be on her parents' health insurance, we'll get married so she can be on mine. Neither of us want kids, and neither of us crave a romantic relationship. I dislike housework and feel ashamed that I'm not more motivated to do it. Thinking along those lines, both of us had the same thought. She could be my platonic housewife. Obviously, this is a flexible plan. If we end up moving to different places after she finishes college or has serious relationships, things might change. But I can see myself being truly happy supporting the both of us, as I am passionate about my mid-paying, considerably high-paying, if I get another degree, field. And I think she would be happy keeping house and taking care of pets. We even have similar frugal tastes. I would want her to be financially independent, so we could either combine finances or split my income. Both of those feel fine to me. Is it insane to think that this is a viable option? It feels too good to be true, and yet at the same time, like other people wouldn't get it when we aren't in romantic love. People do this in romantic relationships all the time. So I found this letter really interesting and refreshing because so many of the letters I receive are from people who are in really awful situations that feel so hard to navigate and can sometimes even feel a little bit hopeless. And here we have someone who's saying, I have a great idea for how to be happy. I've thought about it. It sounds good to me. I've laid out the case. I've addressed counter arguments. Nobody has done anything wrong. And their only question is, is it insane? So um, (laughs) I don't know. I, I really did find it refreshing. I wonder if you see it the same way. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a kind of positive aspect to it. And the letter writer is, is, you know, really joyously stepping towards something that they think that will be good for both themselves and their friend, which I love. Mm -hmm. Now, the question, is it insane? (laughs) (laughs) I think that, I think the answer to that is no, but I have a big, bold asterisk next to that. Okay. My feeling about this is I love it and it's too much all at once. Okay. Mm. So what my advice would be is, you know, as the letter writer says, this kind of division of labor, we see it a lot in um, traditional marriages where Mm -hmm. the partners are romantically involved. You know, on the other hand, it is true that this is a very different setup. Okay. This is a friendship. And as the letter writer says, you know, things, this won't be something that's forever. Probably things, there's lots in flux. They're both in their mid twenties, you know, which is very much, they're both still living with their parents very much at the beginning of things. And so what I would say is proceed, but proceed with caution and do a little at a time. For example, 
you know, the heart of this question, I think, is, is it legitimate for us to live together and for the financial breakdown to be such that, you know, I, the letter writer, goes off and earns actual money and my friend, you know, contributes to our living situation by cleaning and cooking and doing the domestic chores. Like, I think that's a nice division. I do think instinctually, Janae, I feel like the the quote unquote platonic housewife is a little demeaning. You know, mm. um, I know what they mean when they say that, but if I were in this arrangement and I were the one who was the housewife, I would say, you know, I'd rather have this be a more articulated job, you know, and instead of just sort of being expected to stay home and take care of everything, it'd be like, okay, I'm going to do 20 hours of labor a week mm. to keep our home. And in exchange for that, I'll get this amount of money or I'll get this much off the rent. Maybe I live rent free, you know, mm -hmm. something that's more like an agreement. And frankly, I don't even think that's a bad idea to have that kind of agreement in a traditional marriage, if that is the division of labor, that there is an acknowledgement of the work the one doing the domestic labor is doing. So that there is that sense, I guess, of autonomy. If I were the friend in that situation, I would want to be receiving some pay specifically for that work that I'm doing. Right. The letter writer says people do this in romantic relationships all the time, which is a good point. Also, many people who have this arrangement in romantic relationships end up miserable. I'm encouraged by the fact that they've been best friends for so long. Yeah. And they've lived together before. Um, I still think that they would want to almost write a prenup or a contract for this, like you said, with some real detail about how this should work and what happens if it starts to go wrong. Yeah. Especially the letter writer says um, neither of them crave a romantic relationship. Well, that doesn't mean you can't fall in love on the train one day and decide that you want to move in with someone else. So I think whatever the agreement is should include something about what happens if one of us does fall in love with someone else and wants to live with them or wants them to move in. Exactly. Articulate what the tasks are, you know, that they both think need to be done, right? You know, when this might end or how it might end, you know, how about you, you make a, a sort of agreement or written contract that like, you know, that you revisit in six months, that word crave stood out to me too. And again, mm -hmm. because these people are in their 20s, you know, a lot happens in that decade that, you know, your life is in flux. And even if you think you know what the plan is, the plans change. That's true at any age, but that's especially totally. true at this moment in their lives. I don't want this friendship, which is such a strong friendship, to fall apart because there were all of these assumptions and misunderstandings. I think it's a cool idea, but mm -hmm. I think it's also important to acknowledge it isn't a marriage. You know, there are different dynamics at play and they require more autonomy and more explicit communication. Now, can we talk about this idea of them getting married? Any red flags around that for you? Divorce is expensive. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the biggest one to me. I get the health insurance piece of it, but marriage is tough to get out of. And I much prefer a version of this that's a six-month contract or a one-year contract with the option to re-up if it's working for everyone, rather than something that's assumed to be forever. And you have to get out of it with probably a lawyer's help if something goes wrong. Right. And and many, many different things can go wrong. You know, when I was in my 20s and completely broke working as a waitress, I knew somebody who asked me to marry him for citizenship stuff. Mm. And I thought about it. I was reminded of that when I read 
this letter because I had that same kind of like, oh yeah, we could just get married and like that that'd be fine and I'll get, you know, some money and you know, it's all good. And in this case, this letter writer's friend will get health insurance. And I'm so glad I didn't do it because there's so much more to marriage legally and financially. Mm. Um, you know, any number of things can go wrong. Uh, like you said, when they want to get out of it, there's divorce. But there's also like a divorce with then rights for the spouse. You know, I mean, if if things do go south, you would have a financial obligation to this friend uh, for maybe sometimes years to come. Also, if you be- should become ill or die, that friend becomes, as your spouse, your legal next of kin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's just a lot of implications that are are very complicated. And And I will say, you know, I say this with a whole lot of mindfulness about the horror of health insurance in America, which is, I think is just like an outrageous injustice, of course. But this friend of yours, letter writer, it sounds like doesn't make much money. And right. when the friend is off the parent's health insurance, I'm going to guess they'd be eligible for, you know, greatly reduced health insurance through the the health care marketplace or like in the state of Oregon where I live, you know, if, as long as you make under a certain amount, you have the Oregon health plan, you know, various states have various things for, for low income people. And it sounds like this friend would qualify. So mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I'm saying is I understand the need for health care. There are probably more elegant in legitimate ways to get it. Yes, definitely. So that was the one thing that was making me say, okay, if you have to get married, you have to get married. But that's such a good point. You don't have to get married. It sounds like you have a lot of extra money to kind of throw out this situation. So let your friend handle their own health insurance. And if that health insurance is inadequate, your contract or your agreement can include a certain amount of money you'll pay every month in co-pays or in specialists that aren't covered or just to make sure they get the care they need. That would be a, a much better use of your money than the money you could p- potentially lose if you end up getting married. The other thing that stuck out to me about this, I love the idea of alternative living arrangements. Yeah. I was actually raised for several years in what they're now calling a mom So two single moms raising their kids together, not just sharing a home, but sharing vacations and responsibilities and meals and everything. And it worked really, really well for a time. I don't think there is as much of a question about whether it can be a great situation as there is about what will other people think about it. And in this letter, I see the letter writer worrying whether other people will judge her or think she's weird. And I think that's going to have to be something that you just let go. If it works for you, it works for you. And part of the calculation can't be what will other people think. So um, you can do this. You just need to plan for the worst version of it, which is a healthy exercise for both of you. Yeah. Lovingly plan in advance (laughs) for all possibilities. (laughs) Exactly. And, And give it a try. I mean, that's the other thing is like, I think it's really worth trying as much as we're saying, oh, no, how consider this, consider that, consider mm-hmm. the other thing. I think it it sounds good. Mm-hmm. And big caveat, I really, really, really don't think you should get married. But that aside, I like the other pieces of this plan. Completely agree. You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show. And when we come back, we'll be reading more of your letters. Stay with us. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guest, Cheryl Stray, to answer your letters. And the next one is titled, Missing His Scent. Hi, 
My wonderful husband of 15 years stopped using soap about five years ago. I am all for body autonomy, but this is seriously impacting my ability to get close to him. I used to love the way he smelled and would bury my nose in his neck. It was one of the things that really turned me on about him. But about four to five years ago, he stopped using soap after reading something about how it can disrupt a body's natural microbiome or something to that effect. The result is that his skin now feels a bit oily and he constantly smells of low-grade body odor. It's only noticeable when you get really close to him, but I'm the person that gets close to him. He showers every day and is a generally clean person, but I'm starting to get grossed out and don't enjoy our skin-on-skin contact anymore. I love him more than anything and do not want to hurt his feelings, but I would really like him to use soap again. Bare minimum, wash his armpits. Any suggestions? So stinky spouse spouse questions come up pretty regularly for me. I wouldn't say they're a huge theme, but this is really familiar to me. Wow. A lot of people think their spouse stinks. And I always say when I get these, it's so interesting because I know there are relationships in which someone could say, oh my God, you stink. The no soap thing isn't working. Take a shower. And there are relationships in which that would feel impossible and it would feel so mean and cause someone to spiral and feel so hurt. The letter writer would not have written to us if she felt like she could say, please bring the soap back. You know, I'm getting an odor. Can you just handle that? So it's obviously a very sensitive issue, right? Yes. And I think she absolutely has to do that. I think Mm. she I think she (laughs) has to say, not you stink, but hey, like I understand your concerns about soap, but I've just noticed that, you know, since you stopped using soap, there is this odor that's just not pleasant. And Mm -hmm. how about we explore other things that you can do more natural soap? I mean, there's certainly lots of natural soap out there that can be used. Here's the thing about that. Like, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I thought the same thing, you know, like there are relationships. My relationship is one of those where you can say to the person, <laughs> I love you, but you stink. And it, in fact, <laughs> I want to say, Janae, I feel like, and I laughed with my husband when I read this, because I feel like I actually have firsthand experience with this <laughs> thing. Really? My husband, Brian, wonderful, beautiful man who I've been with for hundreds of years now, who I just adore and love. And he's just the sexiest, most beautiful human on the earth. He, every once in a while, has these natural hygiene ideas. One of them was he went through this little phase where he just thought, you know, deodorant is toxic. And so he showers a lot, but he was experimenting with not using deodorant. And I pretty quickly detected this and inquired about it. And he shared this toxic ideology with me. <laughs> and I was like, listen, I don't care. Like, I don't mm-hmm. care if it shaves 10 years off of our lives. You've got to use deodorant. <laughs> <laughs> every every online conversation I've read about natural deodorants, which I've explored, kind of ends with people saying, well, you just have to get used to the way you normally you smell as a human. It's natural. <laughs> no. And I say this with real concern for the letter writer's relationship, because, you know, the minute you start using those words like grossed out and not enjoying skin on skin contact, you know, when you start to be repulsed by your lover, that's doom. That spells doom Mm. to me. You could be right that this relationship is very sensitive and it'll be devastating, you know, to the husband to hear the no soap thing isn't working. It could also just be that the letter writer is like 
very considerate and sensitive and afraid mm-hmm. of hurting somebody's feelings. And I think that the rule for me is when you do have to say something honest and hard to somebody and you are afraid of hurting their feelings, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I'm always, if I have to say something hard and honest, I'm always concerned about people's feelings. There is a way to be kind and honest at the same time. Right. You know, the letter writer can say, I love you. You are the most wonderful person. And I couldn't, you know, be happier with you as my partner. And I'm just feeling like your body odor is turning me away from you. And I don't like it. I love you, but I don't like it. And, you know, sort of take it outside that it's not personal. I mean, this, Mm. you know, that's the thing too, as I wanted to say is it would be one thing if this person had like a health condition that they couldn't change or help. It would be like letter writer, you have to live with that and accept it, you know, or not. Right. Right. But in this case, it is a choice that the partner made to to not use soap. It is a choice that has consequences. And one of the consequences is his partner is repulsed by him. Right. So I think that that, I would want to know that if I did something that repulsed my partner. Have the conversation. Save yourself. Save your nose. Your husband and his biome will will survive. I, I always think about this. Like, what's the universal unsolicited advice I'd give to everyone? Mm-hmm. And this is something I sometimes have people do when I teach writing workshops is write down the one sentence that you're not allowed to say or say out loud the one sentence that you, you know, that you believe you're not allowed to say. And, you know, it's just the truth. It's just the truth about something you want or the way you feel about something. And I think that that is the way we grow and evolve and make our relationships stronger and better. And the way we grow our own lives as well, being brave enough to say the one true thing. And obviously, sometimes that one true thing is very deep. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's like, I want to be a writer instead of an attorney or whatever. And other times it's like, you know, I love you, but your body odor is turning me away from you. <laughs> you know, it sounds silly, but it's 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 a radical uh, it's a radical and necessary truth to share. Absolutely. This is Dear Prudence. We need to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay tuned. I'm Danae, and you're listening to Dear Prudence. Cheryl and I are about to tackle our last question for the day. Cheryl, are you ready? I am ready. This letter is titled Bermuda Bound. I am your quintessential, overachieving, oldest millennial daughter. The trope fits me like my favorite pair of skinny jeans. I grew up in a wonderful middle-class family in a small, close-knit community. Graduated college, own a home, have a great job, and two beautiful children. My life on paper is amazing, but to misquote the line from Titanic, I feel like I'm standing in the middle of a crowded room screaming and no one looks up. I feel like No one sees anything but the perfect exterior, so no one bothers to check and make sure that everything behind the facade is okay. Prudy, it is not okay. I'm emotionally, physically, and mentally so burnt out, I can barely convince myself to get out of bed sometimes. My doctor tried treating me for depression, but the side effects were worse than the depression, so we stopped the meds. I also don't have much faith in people to support me, even if I did tell them I'm struggling. I've got anecdotal evidence in spades to back up these feelings. So I tend to internalize quite a bit. 
My husband is wonderful, but has the emotional range of a teaspoon due to emotional abuse in his childhood, so he's not much help. I carry most of our problems and burdens squarely on my shoulders because I don't trust anyone else to actually help with them. I anticipate having to carry their emotional distress as well, so I just don't bother. I'm worried the mask is going to irreparably crack one day. I've never known anything other than perfection, and I'm well aware this is what everyone else expects from me, but I just can't keep it up any longer. Short of stepping out for lunch one day and not stopping until I get to Bermuda, I don't know how to fix this. I'm confident that there are a few things you can try before abandoning your family and moving to Bermuda. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The thing that jumps out to me in this letter is that the letter writer has really quickly dismissed any possible solutions already. The antidepressant isn't working. I know there are five other ones out there. It's so hard, but you've got to try a few of them. Your husband won't be helpful. You could try. Other people wouldn't understand. You carry everyone's burdens. I guess I just want her to consider finding a little bit less hopelessness about the situation. I also feel like this is such a dear sugar letter. This is the kind of letter that you're so, so good at answering. I almost just want to turn it over to you. (laughs) Janae, this letter really, really broke my heart because I can feel and hear how much this letter writer feels at wit's end and feels like they're suffering and it just pains me. And, Mm -hmm. but you know, the, the good news, like the thing that I wanted to shout, you know, (laughs) open my window Mm -hmm. and shout to the, to the street so the letter writer could hear me is that, you know, they say that they are, you know, afraid that they can't keep up this act of perfection anymore. And what I say is, thank goodness, because that act is what is killing you, dear heart. Yes, don't go to Bermuda, literally, as Janae says, but go there <laughs> metaphorically. Go there mm. metaphorically. And here is what I mean by that is that, you know, your letter is full of all of these anxieties about, you know, what's going to happen if the mask slips, what's going to happen if you can't keep this act up, you know, who are you going to rely on if you can't be perfect anymore? All of those things that you think are keeping you safe, the mask, the perfection, the feeling that you have no one to rely on but yourself, those are the things that are hurting you and harming you, dear heart. They really are. And this is deep work. You know, your letter, you sit, you talk a lot about other people, right? People rely on you. People let you down. People can't be trusted. People don't have emotional range. But, and I say this with all the love in my heart, this is a you problem. This is not a them Mm. problem. Because I promise you, as somebody who is not perfect, who does not wear a mask, (laughs) you know, um, I can tell you is once you step into the world and say, this is who I am and I'm not perfect and I'm all these things, you, you're going to find that you've been wrong about these assumptions you've made about others, you know, and, and, you know, maybe your husband will or will not step forward and be that person you can trust. But even if he doesn't, other people will. I mean, I think that so much of your anxiety about that perfection, you're you're projecting onto others is what I'm saying. Right. It's actually a lot easier to think no one else shows up. No one else has emotional range. No one else is there for me. No one else supports me than it is to think I'm not happy. How do I change my life so I'm happy? Yes. And that word perfection being used so many times in this short letter 
really makes me worried because that's the other thing is maybe part of your projection is, you know, just because people haven't helped you perfectly, just because people haven't said exactly what you want, thought they should say or you wanted them to say, doesn't mean that they weren't there for you. Like the minute you mm. start accepting your own imperfection, which I even hate to use that word because really I just mean your own humanity, you start mm -hmm. to see like, okay, that, you know, the friend who like didn't do this or say this, but then did that and said that, like that's going to be good enough or that's, you know, none right. of us are perfect. And you know, masks are the things that isolate us from our, not only others, but from our own humanity. And so, you know, I think a deep journey is required and a deep undoing. Maybe um, you start, as Janae recommended, trying other antidepressants. If one doesn't work, there are others out there. But I really think mm -hmm. that that is not going to be the final key to your trip to Bermuda, your metaphorical trip to Bermuda, it's mm -hmm. going to be that you start to really have some understanding of the ways that actually aspiring to perfection or believing yourself to be perfect are damaging you. And I, I think this is so helpful to see a therapist to kind of undo mm -hmm. essentially the story that you've told yourself all your life about your need to be perfect. It's also worth thinking about that you're pretty miserable right now. So I understand that you're afraid that if you open up to someone or tell someone how you're feeling or ask for help, you might not get the result you wanted. But things can't get that much worse. At least you would have the information, yeah. right? At least if you opened up to your husband and he said, uh, I don't get it. I was abused as a child. I can't deal with this. Or you opened up to your friend and they said, I'm really disappointed in you for not being perfect. By the way, I don't think people are going to do that. I think people yeah. will be better than you think they will be. You're not going to feel that much worse than you feel right now. I think it's worth taking the chance. It's worth giving people the opportunity to be there for you. And I think taking off the mask and not being perfect and being more vulnerable actually makes it easier for people to be there for mm -hmm. you. Oh, for sure. I mean, how are you there for somebody who is always saying they have it all together? It, it's right. really hard to do. I mean, it, right. it really is because it's like, no, 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 I've got it covered. I'll do it. I do it best. So I'll do it. And, you know, I, I understand, like I relate to this, that, that impulse, but I will say every time that I've done that, um, I end up feeling like, like this letter writer, you know, like this sense of mm -hmm. like, you know, oh, this bitterness, it's just me. Nobody will ever be able to kind of give me what I need. And it's really mm -hmm. because you're not letting them do that. And I think too, like when I said earlier, Janae, like this story, I talk about this a lot as Dear Sugar and my work as Dear Sugar is like that we're constantly writing the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. And mm -hmm. this person, this letter writer has told themselves this story about perfection and the need to be perfect so long that I really mm -hmm. sense this is somebody who doesn't really know who they are. If the only person you can be is the perfect person, that's impossible. None of us are perfect. We're right. gloriously imperfect. And so, right. you know, when I say run off metaphorically to Bermuda, I mean, and I say, take a journey. I mean, really actively do things that change the pattern that has allowed this story to be the only one you tell yourself. 
you know, try things that you're not going to excel at. Be vulnerable with people and see what happens. Maybe actually take a, a trip or a journey that will allow mm-hmm. you to see yourself in a new way. Those are all ways that we learn how to expand our ideas about who we are and what's possible. I think it starts with reaching out to one person, whether it's her husband or a friend, and just saying, I'm really not okay. Yeah. You don't have to explain everything, but just say, I'm really not okay. I'm going through it. And that's the beginning of the conversation. I know that it's scary because I think it's addictive and comfortable to be the kind of person who says, I'm the only one who has my shit together. I'm the only one who can be counted on. No one else can do it like me. You're going to be giving something up by giving up that identity. But I'm really, really hopeful that there are people in your life who are going to show up the way you want to. Yeah. And by the way, who know you're not okay. Mm -hmm. They know. Mm -hmm. They know. So if you can put it on the table and say it, you might actually be able to get like a little bit of support or understanding or help. Absolutely. And and I do want to say, I I think talking to a professional, a therapist would be very helpful because, you know, that would be somebody who really does have some expertise. (laughs) I mean, like, that's the thing is you're not alone. There are a lot of people who are going to really relate to this letter who are going to say, this is exactly how I feel too. Um, I know it because I get letters like this is Dear Sugar and and I have people in my life who I think have gone through this struggle themselves. And, you know, really having somebody who can help you in very practical ways do the deep work that's going to be required to step into your beautiful, glorious, glorious, imperfect self. All right. Those are all the questions we have for this week. It's been fun and as always, hopefully helpful. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Oh, it has been a blast to be here talking to you. Invite me back anytime today. I'm, I'm happy to give advice with you, dear Prudy. Oh, I'm going to take you up on that. <laughs> Go to CherylStray.com and subscribe to her newsletter where she answers questions from people seeking her advice. You can also follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Cheryl Strayed. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, and people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. That's slate.com forward slash P-R-U-D-I-E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday. If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast, we're looking for letter writers who would be comfortable recording their questions for the show. You can stay anonymous. Dear Prudence is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks and me, Janae Desmond-Harris, with a special thanks to Maura Curry. Editorial help from Paola de Verona. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. I'm your Dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time.